Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And today we have as our guest, Dr. Allison Ash. We also call her Allie. Um, Dr. Allie Ash is a sociologist and sexual empowerment coach. And she works with folks of all gender. She is a champion for others overcoming shame and deepening pleasure and self-expression. Welcome to the show, Allie. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. Yeah, so I've seen here. you all over the Bay. Yeah. Um, so Allie, I've seen you leading workshops, all, o- all kinds of really interesting workshops all around the Bay Area. And I was really curious to know more about you. So I thought I'd have you on the show to find out about how you came to doing the work you do and also just hearing a little bit more about your personal story. So I thought we could start by maybe you could just tell us a little bit about why you practice consensual non-monogamy in your life. Sure. I I think that we can relate to consensual non-monogamy in a lot of different ways. And I think that from an intellectual perspective, I've been on board for many, many years. Um, reading Sex at Dawn was definitely one of those pivotal books for me uh, for understanding some of the reasons why um, monogamy has never really seemed to be the social construct that made the most sense to me. And um, sexually, I have related to non-monogamy with ease because I really enjoy um, experiencing kinds of sexual experiences that non-monogamy allows for. Um, And I think that emotionally it's been challenging for me. And I would say that the last really um, cemented the reason why I'm committed to practicing it, even though it can be emotionally challenging, is what I call like a spiritual or even an existential piece to it, which is that I believe that we are all here to love, that that is our greatest purpose here on earth. And um, I want to be open to receiving and giving as much love as I can before I die, and I want that for the people that I love as well. And I don't want to really put bounds on what my love looks like. And so I think that when I have to answer that question, it's just so hard to do it succinctly because I do it for so many reasons, and um, I do it in spite of challenges because of this deep commitment um, around how it relates with my value system. Beautiful. I love what you said. Um, I want to break down a couple of the things you said. And the first one is you talk about that you believe that we're all here to love and you want to love as much as you can before you pass uh, into the next world. And, um, you know, one of the common criticisms of non-monogamy or polyamory is, oh, this is just an excuse to get laid. Um, So what would you say to naysayers who are saying, oh, you just want to be a slut and just fuck as many people as you can um, and you're just calling it, you know, this new agey love more, la, la, la. So I'm on the same page as you, but I just want to hear what you might have to say to a criticism like that. Sure. Um, I think that people practice consensual non-monogamy for a whole wide range of reasons. And I know that I do for many reasons. Um, And the sex is definitely one of them. And I'm also at a point in my life where I don't have sex without emotional connection. 
it's just not as good. I want to feel emotionally naked as well as physically naked when I'm with someone. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that vulnerability, that self-revealing is what creates intimacy. And that's, for me, what creates amazing sex. And it's also what creates love. And so I think that early on when I was first starting out exploring how I wanted to practice non-monogamy, I, I focused on the sexual stuff because that actually felt easier to me because I have attachment, I'm an anxious attacher, and, you know, I had a lot of insecurities and issues with jealousy, and so it was very hard for me emotionally. Um, and now where I'm at is just um, um, the experience of that's where the richness is, is in the love, mm-hmm. in the emotional connection. And as I have experienced time and time again the ways in which love isn't finite and that as absurd as it might sound, the more free I let the people in my life be, the more they love, the more they feel connected with me, the more that I'm having felt experiences that show me that there is security even with emotional non-monogamy, then the more that richness of how much beauty comes from that is allowed to come to the forefront for me. Beautiful. I wrote down something that you said. I love it as a quote. Vulnerability and self-revelation creates intimacy, love, and great sex. Yes. Thank you. That's Uh a great quote. I'll credit you for that quote. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you for that. And so you said it's been very emotionally challenging for you because in the past you've been an anxious attacher. Can you define what that means for people that may not have heard of that before? Sure. So attachment theory states that we form an attachment style that gets imprinted on our nervous system and it starts in utero before we're ever born. And that our attachment style is somewhat cemented by our first few years of life. So um, new takes on attachment theory say that we can definitely have a what's called an, a learned secure attachment style. So there is room for growth and change. Um, but the attachment style that we have is imprinted a lot based on um, how we form attachments early, early on in life. And a lot of it is pre-verbal. Um, it happens before we have access to language. So it's really hard for us to talk about it, to articulate our attachment experiences. Um, and, and a lot of it is um, connected with what has us feel safe and secure. So it's really deeply personal, vulnerable stuff. And as an anxious attacher, um, it's common for me to not fully feel safe in connection and to respond by wanting to make sure that it's there, to make sure that it's safe, that it's connected. Um, hearing lots of I love yous and never staying in conflict for long and um, you know, always affirming the bond that's there is really important to me. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of the work that I've done as an adult has been both learning how to feel more secure in relationships, knowing that there is some anxiety from there, and accepting the fact that I will always have tendencies of an anxious attacher and that there's a lot that I can do to feel safe in relationship knowing that and owning that. And so mm-hmm. and and that being monogamous is not a necessary requirement for me to feel safe in relationship. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think monogamy can bring up our attachment styles just as easily as um, non-monogamy. And mm-hmm. what are some of the what are some of the things you've done um, now that you know that you're an anxious attacher? Um, what are some of the things that you do to help ease that when you're dating someone new? Like, for example, if I'm meeting someone new who is coming into my life and we're exploring dating, I might say, you know, I don't need that much, but I do need to hear from you at the most every three weeks. If more than three weeks goes by, I feel like we have no connection. So I've learned that about myself. What are some of the things that you ask people um, that you've learned you need in order to feel connected enough to not go off into tremendous anxiety and trauma? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I think that what I need depends on where I'm at in a relationship with someone. Early on in dating someone, I might ask for something like um, it can cause me anxiety sometimes if I don't get a response to a text for a long time. So even mm-hmm. if you're unavailable, it's really helpful for me if you can tell me that. Mm-hmm. Um, I might say something like... Uh, um, And I'll affirm what feels really good and what is there in the connection that I do mm-hmm. feel. So it's really mm-hmm. sweet to hear from you. I love it when you reach out and send me those silly cat pictures or whatever it might be. <laughs> right. um, and celebrating what, what does have me feel safe and secure so that the focus isn't always on what's, what's locking up, what's missing. And that's both for me so that I can really feel what is there and remember it, and so that my lovers and partners um, can be aware of what helps me feel safe and secure. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful point, is if we focus on what is working and give our partners that positive reinforcement, then they're really excited to keep doing that rather than complaining about what isn't there. That's really important. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that, you know, it's, it's such a pleasure. We all want to have each other feel good. I mean, like, that's why we're in a relationship. We want ultimately our partners and lovers to be happy. And when it's something that we're already doing and we get to sit in the joy of the fact that we're doing it, it feels so good because I think that so often we beat ourselves up around um, what are the ways that we're contributing to people. Uh, the people in our lives um, or uh, are they appreciating the ways that we're working to contribute to their lives? And so it's just such a nice validation to get to hear it. Mm -hmm. And then how does your um, anxious attachment style come up when um, with regard to someone you're seeing when they take on other lovers? Um, You know, we can call it jealousy or whatever, but how do you manage um, the feelings that come up when your partner is connecting with other people? Yeah, I would say the first thing that I want to identify is if it's, if I'm feeling jealous or if I'm feeling envious. And I think that that distinction is really helpful for me. Um, mm-hmm. Envy is when I want what someone um, – jealousy is when I want what someone else has. So if my partner is dating someone else and um, – and I don't want them to have that relationship or I don't want them to go on a certain date or something like that, then I would experience that as jealousy. But if I want what they have too, then that's envy. And so Mm -hmm. sometimes if I'm feeling envious, it's really helpful because it points me towards what I want. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've been dating someone for um, several months, and he went on this, like, amazing date with someone that he was dating, and I felt envious. And I realized it's because due to the nature of our work schedules, most of our dates were spent kind of hanging out in a low-key environment. And I also wanted to have a night out on the town. But that mean, that didn't mean that I didn't want him to have this date with this other person. I just wanted a similar kind of date. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I'm feeling jealous, then I, or if I'm feeling like I'm um, feeling like an anxiety around the attachment, then I'll ask for things like, um, uh, I would really like to meet the person. Because for me, if I feel a connection, then I feel um, safer. It helps me relax. Mm-hmm. It helps me affirm the bond. It helps me make sure that, like, any paranoias I have are just totally set at ease because I, it's a face to a name and a relationship to the face, which is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll often ask for things like, um, if I send you an SOS text, like, please respond right away, even if you're on a date. I want to know mm-hmm. that you're not unattainable for me something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And then I very rarely mm-hmm. send them, but knowing that I can and that they'll be responded to, that can be really helpful. Mm, good point. Yeah, I like the distinguishing between envy and jealousy because one of the things I teach my clients to transform their jealousy is um, to make sure that they have a passion hobby, um, whether it's playing music, doing crochet or rock climbing or whatever it is that you're passionate about and you just love, then when your partner is off on another date and you can't seem to get a date that same night, which it's always hard to balance that out where um, your partner is having a date the same night you are. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. There's bound to be those times when you can't get a date that night. Um, so then you can say, oh, good, tonight I can work on my macrame or whatever it is. You know, oh, good, tonight I can practice that song I'm writing. Um, so I think everybody should have a passion hobby that there's, they're always looking forward to some free time where they can work on that. So that's a one way to deal with the envy. Mm-hmm, I love that. Um, that's great advice. Right. Um, and then you also talked about the book Sex at Dawn, and I just want to say it more clearly for our listeners who haven't heard of that book. I also highly recommend it, Sex at Dawn. And um, you were talking about the social construct uh, that you learned from reading Sex at Dawn, and you're a sociologist. So I'd love to hear how that book affected you, why it affected you so much, and what you learned about social constructs from reading that book. Hmm. Well, I have to admit, it's been several years since I've read it, so I'm going to reach back into my memory banks as far as they will allow. Um, but mm-hmm. I, what really impressed me um, by the book was the amount of research that they included. I am a data nerd, and I really want to have feelings and thoughts supported by research and evidence and data. And the book just did a really great job of explaining it from so many different perspectives, using so many different types of data um, from so many different disciplines that it was just Mm -hmm. very persuasive. And it Mm -hmm. allowed me to really have uh, some more spaciousness around my emotional experience because I was able to really understand why I have been conditioned in the ways that I have and the ways in which um, uh, it, the book 
paint so many models of other alternative societal structures. And it's so hard to envision other ways of being until you have a picture in front of you. And sometimes even just having a few pictures in front of you is enough to then spark your imagination to consider all sorts of things that you would never have considered before. And I remember reading about so many of the matriarchal societies and how in these societies that where there was non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, that everyone was thriving and that it was actually a huge source of empowerment for the women, that they weren't, um, that they weren't subjugated by it, as I think many people would, would believe that it would be a form of um, oppression, but instead they were empowered and, um, and their children were better, were, were raised in terms of family structures rather than in terms of um, marriage structures and, they, you know, by their brothers and just some really interesting alternative ways of raising children and constructing romance and sexuality. And, um, and it, just, it just started me along this whole creative path of getting to think outside of the norms and having mm-hmm. a little bit of fodder for how to do so. Right. Thank you. And in your bio, you talked about exploring complex societal challenges that often lead to disempowering sexual experiences. So I was really contemplating that sentence there. Um, and a lot is going on these days with this uh, movement, the Me Too movement mm-hmm. of so many women finally coming out and talking about their abuse experiences. And really what's different is that people are believing them. Um, Even the Republicans are (laughs) believing the women now. Um, So I'd be curious to hear about uh, your take on the shift that's happening in our society right now that may be leading to more empowering sexual experiences in the future. Yeah, I think with regards to Me Too campaign and everything that's been going on lately, I mean, the first sexual assault that I experienced, I was 16. This is more than 15 years ago. And this was before rape culture was rape culture. It's before we really talked openly about rape. Um, it was in the area, in the era of intense victim blaming, um, slut shaming. Not that that doesn't happen now, but it was just so rampant and unacknowledged that there was any other way of responding to the situation. And uh, I remember just the news getting out at school. Um, I was 16. I was raped by two 23-year-old men the first time I was ever drunk. I was at a party. And, I mean, simply right there, you know, okay, drunk, so I was intoxicated. 23, I was 16, that's statutory. There's no denying that this was rape. And yet, mm-hmm. was not, right? It was, Allie chose to have sex with you guys. She's the slut of the school. And the slut shaming that happened for me afterwards was personally, I'll speak for myself, um, more emotionally abusive and traumatic for me than the rape itself. And part of that is because oh I washed out for much of the rape. But I mm-hmm. went to a very small school, and it followed me for years. And so mm-hmm. I think that one of the shifts that we 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 started to see was a sh- was an acknowledgement of what is happening, even the term rape culture coming out, an acknowledgement of how it's happening, how we're blaming the victims, um, how um, it's not the woman's fault, 
um, that we need to believe survivors, the fact that people are underreporting, how absolutely rare it is to have anybody misreport. Um, just some of these some of these stats coming out and starting to get believed has been has been part of it, right? Um, and I think that what's happening with the Me Too campaign is that um, uh, it's is, is that women are finally starting to feel a little bit safer to start to share their stories mm-hmm. because it's taking, it's taken this much time, I think, for there to be enough of a change in, the, in, in, in how we're relating to this that people are willing to post on Facebook and share all of the details of what has happened. What has happened. Um, mm-hmm. It's that we're starting to have enough enough pushback against um, all of the cases where um, where rapists are getting off too lightly or with slaps on the wrists, and and seeing the huge social ties that's turning around that. And so, I think that um, that the Me Too campaign is wonderful, and I, and I and I so pleased to be seeing it happening and I think that it's important to to note that this has been just so long coming and that mm-hmm. um, and that it's it's for me the inspiring part about the campaign is seeing the I have because that's that's the part that is groundbreaking is seeing the people that are coming up and saying I have done this and I'm owning it, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to engage in restorative justice, or I'm willing to um, recount the ways in which I have um, been a perpetrator in this system. And, um, mm-hmm. and also for women to do that, because it's not just men who are committing sexual violence and who are, per- who mm-hmm. are um, slut-shaming and, and disbelieving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what's really different is that, that, well, maybe it's not different, but it does seem like it takes a group of women. When it's just one woman, uh, it's less likely that she will be believed than when there's multiple women. So I'm loving that groups of women are coming together and inspiring each other and supporting each other, and that seems to be making a difference. Um, and I think it's really opened okay. up men's eyes when they see that almost every single woman they know has had an experience of of either rape, abuse, molestation, or just harassment. So it's opening people's eyes about how there are no women in our society that escape it. Mhm. Mhm. So some kind and, of shift is and, happening, and it's exciting. And, men. <laughs> and, and you know, yeah. I think that the, that's the other thing is that there are a lot of male survivors, and uh-huh. um, unfortunately, I think the world is still, I mean, our society, I'll speak for, is still really far behind in acknowledging the trauma that happens to men and creating safe spaces for men to be able to report and for trans folks uh, to be able to report Mm -hmm. the sexual violence that happens to them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the stats show that men uh, delay years from reporting because of all of the disbelief and secondary victimization and that that they give, that, that they experience. And so... Um, I got to see yeah, a lot can, can of, be. of how. Mm-hmm. Please, go ahead. It was just uh, I really enjoyed getting to see the the 
seeing the women come out in force and supporting one another, seeing the men who are willing to vulnerably share about their experiences with sexual assault, um, having the trans people speak as well, and then, of course, um, the I have folks who are, I think, in a lot of ways um, incredibly brave to own that so publicly. Exactly. Thank you for naming that. Awesome. Okay, well, let's move on a little bit, uh, move back a little bit to your story. Um, how has the way that you've related to consensual non-monogamy changed over time from your own growth? Yeah, I think so much of it has um, really shifted for me as my values around um, our purpose here around love um, have changed. And I think that that really happened for me. I witnessed I witnessed someone die, and um, it was an incredibly traumatic experience. And I kept thinking, how do we live and love in this world that just felt so unsafe to me after after seeing seeing someone pass over and seeing light and life go out from someone's eyes, and and not really having faith that someone would still be breathing in five minutes, or that I would still be breathing in five minutes. It's just. I think that any illusion I had in permanence was shattered in that moment. And it took me about a week of just complete agony to realize that the answer for me is not to love less, but to love more. Because I don't know when Mm -hmm. and how I'm going to die. But I do know that I want to give this world all that love that I have to give and really be available to receive what's here for me in the time that I do have. And Mm-hmm. And I think that part of my lingering, like, difficulty around practicing non-monogamy was around um, the fear of impermanence, that somehow um, there was stability to be gained from monogamy. And what I realized in that moment is monogamy or not, nothing is permanent. And that uh, the only thing that I know is that it's all worth it. That even with heartbreak, even with loss, even with grief, which is an inevitable part of life, that I've gone through it and that I wouldn't trade one ounce of love for one ounce less pain. And so knowing that it's all worth it, knowing that I can't clean and make anything permanent, and knowing that love is the biggest gift that I have to give and the biggest gift that this world has to offer, I'm choosing to say yes to it. And there's mm-hmm. a choice Perfect. here that feels, it's, it feels like a choice. And I think before I was like, oh, intellectually I believe in it and I should just, I should just. There's a lot of a shoulds. I should just. And now it's I want to. I'm mm-hmm. very clear and strong I want. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the ways you've found it to nourish you, found non-monogamy to be nourishing for you? I think that it's incredibly exciting because it's offered me such valuable community, not just the greater, you know, polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous community in the Bay Area, but also the community that I have found through my Lovers and partners. There are lovers and partners, and they're my metamorphs, and my metamorphs metamorphs. There's just such inspi- inspiring people that I've gotten to meet, and um, and people who are dedicated and committed to love 
and communication and authenticity and transparency and boundaries and um, meeting me where I'm at and holding space for for my emotional experience because they are really well experienced in doing that for themselves. Um, these are all things and skills that I've learned from my friends and peers who are practicing non-monogamy. There's something about being emotionally naked with someone, physically naked with someone that allows me to be emotionally naked. And there's something about when I'm emotionally naked that I can grow and learn on a deep somatic level and on an interpersonal level in a way that I can't in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Perfect. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Dr. Allison Ash, who has a background in sociology, and she is now a sexual empowerment coach. So, Dr. Allie, um, I want to ask you one of the most common uh, questions that many of us get from monogamous people is, how do you deal with jealousy? And so for people that are new to open relationship, um, what would you say to them when it's so common in our culture for people to automatically feel like they have to avoid jealousy at all costs so they can't imagine being non-monogamous because they might feel jealous. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so all of the emotions that you talk about, the grief, the heartbreak, the jealousy, all of those emotions, our society has told us, don't feel them, avoid them. So how do you help people to find a way to hold those feelings and move through them so that they can enjoy the love that you talk about? Yeah, that's a great question. I work with my clients a lot on this, on increasing their capacity to be with challenging emotions. And I think the first thing is in exactly what you just did, which is the reframe, that these aren't negative emotions, that they're challenging, but that they're positive and worthwhile and certainly part of being human and living a full human experience. And so um, acknowledging that, that they're healthy and that while they're challenging, that there's a lot to be gained from experiencing it. And that the fear of experiencing it is oftentimes worse than the actual experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I also talk about how um, we can't selectively choose what emotions we feel. And what we can do is we can start to... Um, not really feel all of our emotions and kind of mute our emotional experience, or we can choose to be open to feeling a full range of emotional experience. And so are you willing to feel pain in order to feel happiness? Um, Are you willing to feel um, grief and anger in order to feel joy and connection and um, love? And that... Um, and that when we're allowing ourselves to feel these emotions as they arise and to feel them by tracking them as they show up somatically in our body, then we're not creating like accumulation of unfelt energy and unfelt emotions that can translate to anxiety or depression or all sorts of other kinds of chronic illness because um, because because what we need to do is when we can feel these emotions as they naturally arise, 
then we can actually just have a, uh, an easier time in relationship in the long run. So it's doing a bit of emotional labor up front to really save ourselves a lot of um, disconnection or from ourselves and others down the line. Mm-hmm. And so are you talking about doing the emotional labor with yourself and or with your partners? Yes, both. I mean, I think that, like, you know, maybe I'm using emotional labor in a, in a way it's not traditionally used here, but I think for me it's quite laborful sometimes to feel my emotions. Um, oh, I see. And then to express them and to share them with someone else can also be really challenging. And also to express them and share them in a way that I can be heard. Um, and so I think that there's a little bit of um, of effort and and um, and work that I'm doing by being with my emotions and processing my feelings that allows me to show up in relationships better as a friend, mm-hmm. as a partner, as a housemate, um, in all my relationships. Right. So all of us need to do that inner work, um, that healing work, personal growth work, so that we, because I do believe that it requires a certain degree of emotional maturity to practice non-monogamy. Um, we can't just be irresponsible in our communication, blaming other people, um, spewing our emotions all around without taking responsibility. It's not going to work. So I agree that we all need to do quite a bit of emotional healing work before we can embark on a journey like this. Yes, it's, it's, really, um, it's really one of the reasons why I enjoy it is that it gives me that pathway to continue to um, make sure that I'm accountable to my self-growth. Right, and often in, in monogamous relationships, we can sort of get into these patterns and um, you've got two people living kind of side-by-side lives that aren't quite as deep, um, that don't have that quality of transparency that you talked about at the beginning of our, of our talk here. Um, and it's, it's pretty easy to, to go into that sweeping everything under the rug, not really talking about stuff and just being busy and um, whereas in non-monogamy, we kind of have to deal with that stuff if we if we want to keep our relationships alive. Mm-hmm. So what have, been, what have been some of your experiences of feeling disempowered? And can you describe your journey to empowerment? Yeah, I think that my journey started with being assaulted in high school and then having some feelings of being objectified or not feeling like my wants were more valued or mattered at all. And, um, and realizing that that's not how I wanted to relate with my sexuality, that I was entitled to pleasure and that um, I was entitled to, um, to ask for what I wanted and to assert for what I needed. And so I think that it started for me in college in exploring what that looked like to take pleasure into my own hands, to learn my body, to learn how I wanted to be touched, and then to ask for it and to have that be a filter through which I used to figure out who I wanted to um, sleep with and who I wanted to partner with. And I think that... As I got older and moved into grad school, a lot of my sexual empowerment work was around 
re-healing some of the, um, starting to heal some of the trauma that I had and some of the fears I had around my relationships with men. And um, also exploring my queer identity and the ways in which that was incredibly empowering for me. And realizing in that how my sexuality could be a vehicle for self-growth for me. Um, I realized that I never had a healthy relationship. I never really had a healthy relationship modeled for me. And so I started intentionally dating couples for a while as a way to really explore what relationships could look like and what I wanted for myself in my next relationship, what all the ways of showing up were pos- that were possible. Um, I love I that. That's this- a brilliant idea to date couples <laughs> that are healthy to kind of understand how they communicate and stuff. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was wanting to study power dynamics, and so I started studying kink and BDSM and exploring that, and that was an incredibly powerful way for me to learn about power and how power and gender relate and um, incredibly empowering for me to explore my dominant side and to get to feel how that felt uh, to express my sexuality uh, and have it be received uh, so tenderly and so joyously by my partners. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that exploring group sex and play parties has been profoundly helpful for me to learn about myself and to feel more empowered around Um, the different kinds of experiences that I want and around how gratifying it is for me to be pushing norms and to be questioning societal uh, constructs like uh, that something like a play party is just a debaucherous scene when in reality oftentimes they're just parties where something like sex is totally permissible because we're celebrating freedom of expression, Right. There's just so mm-hmm. many things that I've gotten to engage in with my sexuality that have taken me to greater understanding of myself, my desires, and my wants, and have introduced me to people who are curious about what I want and willing to meet me where I need to be met, and that that understanding of myself and that expression of myself and having that be respected by others, that's that's the journey to empowerment, knowing yourself, asking for what you need, and having the kinds of experiences that you want. And for me, that was a very piecemeal journey of, like, every step along the way saying, hmm, what is it that I want to explore now that's going to give me greater understanding, and where can I go and explore it? Mm-hmm. Well, Allie, I just want to acknowledge you and celebrate you for what you've overcome and how you have chosen to put yourself in situations where you would grow. And thank you for sharing your assault experience and using that to teach us. Um, and I appreciate you, you know, revealing that and being vulnerable. And I'm just proud of you for overcoming that and getting to the, the place you are now where you can actually teach empowerment to other people. It's very beautiful. Thank you. I think that that was the final um, puzzle piece for me was, being able to share my experiences with other people. And for me, that really took shape when I was getting my PhD and getting to create courses in 
that I was teaching to undergrads that talked about some of the experiences that I had. Sex and Love in Modern Society was one of them. It talked about questioning non-monogamy. It talked about uh, BDSM. We talked about what sexuality looks like over the life course and assault and all of these key things that I had learned through my own um, sexual experiences and explorations and academic pursuits. And um, I think that when we can take what was challenging, use it to propel us forward, to fuel and to teach us, and then can use that experience to help support others and to teach them and to uh, be the basis for empathy and compassion and relating and interacting, then it really feels like, okay, like I might have been dealt a deck of cards or a hand of cards I wish I didn't get, but I really played it to the best of my ability. And that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Like I never would have wished that I was assaulted, but at the end of the day, I am so grateful for where I am now and for all of the work mm-hmm. that I have gotten to do as a result of that experience and the ways in which it has prepared me to do the work that I am doing as a coach and educator and helping others. And so I think it's what we make out of our experiences that can be a really empowering component to our journey. Exactly. And so how did you go from, uh, you know, getting your PhD in sociology to actually becoming a sexual empowerment coach? Well, when I was in grad school, I loved teaching. That was my passion, and I did quite a bit of research. Um, but teaching was always what had me feel so alive. And I published some research that looked at orgasm differentials. Why were college women orgasming less often than college men from a social perspective, not from a biological perspective? And we found a lot of things about equality and access to pleasure and ways in which women were not feeling entitled to pleasure and not advocating for what they wanted or needed, and ways in which uh, communication was um, a huge issue. And um, I decided to create a workshop called How to Be a Feminist in the Bedroom. It's my first, it's, I still mm. teach it. It's my first workshop. And I wanted to offer it for adults outside of academia to bring some of the research that I was doing uh, creating real-life change from what happened in the lab room behind the computer screen. And um, and it was so empowering for me, like I said, to get to help other people and to get to see their, you know, the, the light bulb go off in their eyes when I would say something like, your yes is meaningless if you don't have full access to your no. Mm. And just like the, like just the, 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 the ways that that would impact people and then to teach them all the ways that you can say no and say no and lovingly close the door or say no and redirect towards what you do want or say no firmly when your no isn't being respected. Um, that, that I got to, to start to translate some of the research and academic work I was doing into things that could be immediately accessible and create real-life change for people outside of academia. And um, I knew that I didn't want to stay in the world of academia. And so when I was getting ready to graduate, I was thinking about uh, the work that I wanted to do. And I was teaching at that point how to eat pussy like a champ as well. And these workshops were proving to be successful and to be possible. And so I took a leap of faith. And I um, knew that at my heart I'm an educator and that I love working with people. I want to and be actively engaged in the change that I'm creating. And um, 
And so I traveled for a year after graduating. I needed that time to reset my soul and spirit and reignite my fire to to create and came home and launched turnon.love, which is my business. And I now teach over 12 workshops and I have about four or five coming out in the next few months. And I offer coaching for somatic uh, sex uh, therapy coaching. Pardon me, not therapy, somatic sex coaching for individuals, men, women, and for couples as well. And um, and that's just been a, a way of taking what I teach in the workshops and what I've taught to Stanford students over the years and making it accessible to folks in a much more experiential, interpersonal way, um, using our coaching relationship as a way to explore so many of the things that come up for people when creating intimacy. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you help your clients with? some of their issues? Um, A lot of my clients, uh, you know, and there are some gender differences that I've um, come to to notice, but I would say that a lot of my clients need help around communication, and that shows up differently. A lot of the women that I work with um, are exploring what they want and learning how to ask for it, learning how Mm -hmm. to say no and assert their boundaries, Um, uh, feeling comfortable um, stating their needs, um, oftentimes ex- learning how to create the conditions for them to feel more connected with their bodies or with their sense of sexuality or with what they want to explore. Um, uh, with men, it tends to be teaching them to learn, uh, teaching them how to speak in the language of sensation and emotions because Mm -hmm. we live in a society that values the thinking brain, especially for men. And so teaching them that it's the language of emotions that has people feel connected and safe and the language of sensations that create turn on and desire and embodiment and how to do that is a very key piece of, of of relating. Um, I work with my clients around increasing their capacity for pleasure. So for women, that might be around exploring um, different kinds of orgasm or their relationships with orgasm, Um, exploring uh, their kink fantasies or um, uh, exploring having relationships with other women or with trans folks. And with uh, men, it tends to be around issues around ED or um, erectile dysfunction or um, premature ejaculation, learning how to feel pleasure in their entirety of their body um, so that they can actually have sex for longer um, because their capacity for pleasure is increased. Um, Teaching them how to touch for their own pleasure because oftentimes, actually that's applicable for everybody, Um, Teaching, touching for your own pleasure rather than being in your head trying to figure out what someone wants and forgetting that you are actually an active person in the situation and that your pleasure is, is, matters. Um, teaching uh-huh. things like attunement. So how do you know where the other person is at? How do you adjust to them using your intuition? Um, practices around uh, how to hear and say no and stay in connection, redirecting towards what you do want. So handling rejection. Um, things around insecurity and jealousy and envy and how do we navigate it and express it in a way that can create disconnection rather than disconnection. Um, mm-hmm. And with couples, a lot of it is around bridging differences in desire. So maybe someone has a greater level of turn on than the other or is in, interested in different kinds of sexual interactions than the other. 
or opening up and exploring um, what that's like or helping um, couples who are already open um, navigate what that's like for them. I work with a lot of couples around um, freshening up their sex life and inserting new skills and expanding their repertoire and helping them learn what is their hottest sexual movie and how do they cultivate that so that they can increase their turn on in relationships that they have been going on for a long time. Um, and this is like a small smattering of the topics. That's one of the things I love about my work is that every day I'm working with clients who um, have their own issues and their own unique take on it and their own things that they want to explore and their own things that they're celebrating. And there's just such rich diversity when it comes to sex and intimacy. Um, and it's a joy for me to get to work with people on so many different levels with so many different topics. Yeah, that is a wide range of topics. Um, so I specialize in working with um, mature people who are entering the world of non-monogamy for their first time. And so if you had a couple that was wanting to open their relationship, how would you help them get started? One of the things I like to do is suggest um, that they explore why are they doing it. That they can really get clear and can articulate why are they wanting to open up so that when it gets challenging, they can reference that. So I'll actually have them write it out. Um, and that might be, I want to explore. I want to feel more love in my life. I want to support my partner. I want to um, uh, have more sex in my life. I want to meet new people, whatever it is. Um, and that that's a list that they can keep adding to. Um, and so I think that that can be really helpful. And then I also recommend that they... Um, create a list of all of the things that they could imagine doing and imagine their partner doing as they open up and to share lists and to write down next to each item a number between 1 and 10 corresponding to how easy it feels as a number 1 and how challenging it feels as a number 10 and then also giving them an option of an X for something that's a hard no or a clear boundary, something that's just they're never going to want to do or they believe that they're never going to want to do. So, for example, a one might be flirting with someone at a party and a three might be kissing someone and a five might be going on a date and a seven might be sleeping with someone and a 10 might be having an ongoing relationship and an X may be having non-protected sex with someone else. And that's just mm-hmm. one example, right? For, for, some, mm-hmm. for various clients, uh, different things are going to feel triggering and different things are going to feel exciting. And the reason why mm-hmm. I suggest that to my clients is because oftentimes there's going to be a lot of overlap on their ones and their twos, things that feel exciting yet easy, not necessarily super challenging. And that's mm-hmm. such a rewarding and rich place to get to start because they get to have a self-experience of why they're doing some of the stuff that they're doing and that it doesn't have to be extremely emotionally challenging or painful, that there are ways that they can experience non-monogamy that feel nourishing. So the goal will be to move up the scale slowly at their own pace whenever they're totally ready um, and that they can see the scalability of it without it feeling overwhelming, that they have to get anywhere anytime soon. That's excellent. What a great idea. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And um, Ellie, you teach so many different kinds of workshops. How do you decide what kinds of workshops to create? Oh, that's so much fun. (laughs) I often create Mm -hmm. workshops based on what I am geeking out on, what I am currently interested in exploring, and also what I'm seeing show up as themes um, that my clients need help with over and over and over again. Or even in a particular workshop I'm teaching, a theme that comes up over and over again. So, for example, um, I teach a workshop called How to Pick Your Person, which is all about how do you know who you want to move forward with. It doesn't matter if you're looking for a date or a lover or primary partner. Um, Whatever relationship dynamic you're looking uh, for, how do you know who's going to be the right person for you? What is the filter that you're going to develop? And in this workshop, attachment uh, styles and attachment theory comes up every time. And so I'm creating a new workshop to help people explore what is their attachment style and how can they, um, what are the hacks that are going to be helpful for their attachment style so they can still have healthy relationships and so they can communicate their experience and ask for the kind of support that they need. Um, Mm -hmm. And another workshop I'm creating is called How to Be a Feminist in the Dungeon which looks at what are mm. feminist, uh, what, what are the different kinds of kink and what is the feminist and non-feminist take on it. And looking at things that are inherently um, edgy, like play and gender play and rape fantasies, things that people might assume are not feminist, but how, what does a feminist take on that? How, how can that mm-hmm. actually be, per, per, be supporting equality and empowerment? And, so, mm-hmm. and that's something that I've just been fascinated about over the years, and as I talk about it with friends and I talk about it with clients, they're also fascinated. So I say, okay, this is something that other people would love to learn about too. So it's, you know, not altruistic. There's a lot of self-motivation around what are my own curiosities and interests and passions. Um, and then getting to have so many clients that I work with in a coaching dynamic, it really is a great way to, to tap into how, how, how widespread are people's curiosities and challenges on these different topics and what is the way that is really useful presenting it to people so that they can feel like that kind of learning and growth is accessible. Beautiful. So we're almost out of time, and I want to give you plenty of time to tell our listeners how to reach you and um, believe you also have uh, a gift for our listeners or um, an offer for them. So um, please take it from here. You've got about five minutes to tell us about anything that you want to offer our listeners and how to reach you. Great. Thank you. Um, my website, well, my business is named turnon.love, and that's also my website, www.turnon.love. And you can reach me there. You can see the full list of workshops that I'm offering. Um, some that might intrigue you include how to be an intuitive lover, feel your way to yes, how to eat pussy like a champ. Um, coming out next year will be how to pleasure the penis like a champ, so stay tuned for that. Um, mm-hmm. And my email address is allisonashphd at turnon.love, although you can also just email me through the website. And if you are interested and Allison in... Allison is with one L, right? Yes, A-L-I-S-O-N-A-S-H-P-H-D at turnon.love. And if you'd like to purchase a ticket for a workshop, right now I have a 20% off coupon for you called Heartwarming, one word, Heartwarming, that you can use for 20% off any of my workshops. 
And um, as always, I offer complimentary 15 to 20 minute phone calls with folks who are interested in pursuing coaching so that they could understand more around what my coaching is like. It's a very experiential form of, of coaching. I that we can only learn so much about something through talking about it. It's through having felt experiences that we give our body, our nervous system, opportunities to rework itself, to basically do non-invasive brain surgery by creating new neural circuits in our brain that allow us to show up and organize differently in the world and in our relationships. And so in my workshops and in my coaching, there's lots of exercises that we do to help folks have felt experiences around a lot of the things that I've mentioned. So um, in my coaching practice, teaching clients how to flirt, how to escalate and de-escalate, how to um, assert boundaries, how to redirect towards what, to what they do want, how to do feather touch and a firmer holding touch and um, how to seduce, how to turn on passion and dominance and romance. And we do that together in relation in very, with very clear boundaries, so in a very clear container, so that my clients can develop some of these skills that they can then use in their relationships in the world. And so um, <clears throat> working with folks and working with couples, helping them learn these skills um, in this experiential way is just a, an incredibly effective way of helping both the body and the brain start to be available and uh, to create change in how we relate with people. Beautiful. It sounds really valuable. Can you do this through video conferencing, or are your sessions in, need to be in person? I do video sessions. Um, in person is always ideal, but I work with many clients across the world, and so I do Skype and FaceTime um, and Hangouts. And uh, in this day and age, it's really so easy uh, to work with people across the world. And there's a lot of creative hacks that I've come up with so that people can still get to experience a lot of the exercises, even if we're not working face-to-face, uh, -face, even if it's virtual. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay. Well, um, Allie, I really appreciate your time. It was really great getting to know you, and I just want to acknowledge all that you're offering and how much uh, you're changing the world, um, one workshop and one client at a time. So thank you so much for all that you bring, all the healing that you bring to to so many people in the world, and, and thank you for being on my show. Thank you so much. I've had such a joy. It's been such a joy getting to speak with you, and I really appreciate your podcast. It's doing such amazing things and the work that you're doing as well. It's, it's so wonderful to be on the same team, helping people have the kinds of uh, relationships that they, that they want and experiences they desire. So thank you for your work as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll see you later. Take care, Ali. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.